Our teaching text this morning is Daniel 1, 1 to 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. This is the word of the Lord. You nailed it with the names. Good job. My son, my son Luke thinks it's the funniest thing ever to mess those names up. It's like hashtag Rashad and a Billy Goat. <laughs> when a kid thinks a joke is funny, though, then they say it forever. So I'm Caleb. You might remember me from the long announcements just a few moments ago. Uh, Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, I pray that you would just uh, have mercy on us as a church. Uh, The weights that we are carrying, the distractions that we might be wrestling with, um, even our own sin, Lord, we just pray that you would would treat us according to your loving kindness and mercy, God, and not according to our records, but you would deal with us on the record of Jesus. And we pray that you would form us to be a people who know how to live the way of God, the way of Christ, and also interact with our neighbors. And I think this book of Daniel has a a few important things to highlight for us, and I pray that we would hear them from your spirit and not just from, uh, from human lips. Give us ears to hear. We pray that so often, God, we are dependent on you in every way. And so we, we just begin acknowledging that and asking for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a follower of Jesus, or if you're someone who would say, you know, Alpha is, is for me, I'm considering the claims of Jesus. I want to tell you one thing right up front so you wouldn't be surprised. Many of you already know this, but... Being a follower of Jesus, being a person of faith, means that you will spend some time living between a promise and its fulfillment. There will be many things that come into your life as, as, a, as a follower of Jesus that will feel like something like an instant fulfillment, like there was a longing that you were craving uh, that you maybe couldn't even articulate or put your finger on, but it was in your soul, and, and you, you come into contact, into a relationship with God, and it's like, wow, something has occurred in me, but because of this, this 
step of faith because of this response to God and it feels like a fulfillment right then but then there will be many times in your life after that moment where you'll be waiting for something. We have an entire season in the church calendar that's just about helping people wait. It's called Advent. Like, What do you do when it seems like God's promises are a long way off? Advent. You wait. Okay? So there will be... Uh, periods in our life as followers of Jesus, as individuals, and as, as a community where things that we're longing for that will eventually be fulfilled aren't here yet. Much has already occurred. Many of us have experienced the thrill and joy uh, uh, of our hearts being captured by God in salvation. We've experienced forgiveness. We're experiencing life with the Holy Spirit of God. As mysterious as that is, that's what we believe. The Holy Spirit of God comes and lives in people. And, and, and it's such an intimate connection that those people become like Jesus in their character. That's so much of that type of reality is possible to be fulfilled. And yet there's still much that is to come. There are areas that we look out in our world and we say like, this horrific injustice doesn't represent the kingdom of God. In many places, the church's segregation doesn't represent the kingdom of God. In many places of our own character, uh, our, our, our hearts, our desires, our mindsets, our thoughts, our patterns don't represent the kingdom of God. And so we're in this space between the promise has been made. He who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. And, and as a collective hope for our community, we're headed to this new city where God is fully in control, where, where, where his presence is, is known completely, where people from every tribe and tongue and nation, the middle wall of division between them is broken down and in an embrace of love and worship before God. That's where we're headed. That's like the pictures in Revelations. If you skip over the scary stuff in the middle and you get to the end, it's like a great city. So, just wanted to say that. You probably already knew it. We feel it like longing. And the writer of Hebrews expresses um, the tension of this idea a little bit. Hebrews 11, if you're not familiar, is like a hall of fame of faith stories. If you want to read it this afternoon, it just tells the story of a bunch of people who had to walk in that in-between space between God inviting them into something, making a promise, and them actually receiving the fulfillment of them. And some of them didn't even see what they were hoping for in fullness in their lifetime. But um, it's one of the places in the New Testament where the story of Daniel is actually mentioned. In a brief phrase, even though Daniel's name is not mentioned, when it's talking about people of faith, it says, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouth of lions and quenched the fury of the flames. We'll get to those stories later in the book of Daniel. But uh, in recapping that moment and others of, of living in this place between promise and fulfillment, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would, they would have had opportunity to return and said they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. They did not see the things promised. <laughs> They lived in hope of them, waiting to welcome them from a distance, and they lived as strangers and foreigners in their world. The reality of the kingdom of God, there are seeds of promise, 
promises from God, which we have to say, can we believe these things, live as if these things are true, even when our emotions or our circumstances or many things conspire to rob our hearts of that type of hope, that type of confidence. There are seeds of promise. Then there are real stories of fruit. I, 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 I've, I've told her story many times in here, but I see Amanda Brasher on our TGC Kids Ministry video, and then I think about her, uh, how she found her way into our church. She was just walking down the sidewalk, and someone had mentioned uh, Trinity Grace to her, her at some point, so when she saw the sign, she said, I'll go in, and she goes in. And then she sits down and her entire life was changed by hearing the message of Jesus. And now if you get around Amanda, even like she's talking about in this video, her whole life radiates this hope in the person of Christ and his kingdom coming. So there are seeds of promise, there is real fruit, but then there's still that, that gap where we don't have the full revelation of what we're hoping for. So every generation of Christians, since there's been any generation of Christians, has had to answer the question, how do we live in our context? How do we live in a wider world that differs from our core convictions in significant ways, and yet we're a part of it, and we love our neighbors and our world? Every generation of Christians has had to wrestle with that. It's as Romans 12 famously puts us, puts it, how do we not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by a changing of how we think on a fundamental level, by a renewing of our minds in such a way that we would be those people who know the will of God. Now, that's a famous Bible verse. If you haven't heard it before, uh, that, that's, that's fine, but many of you have heard it before, and it's essentially saying there's a pattern in the world that those whose hearts are fully devoted to God are not to be conformed to, but the entire way that they think is to be transformed in such a way that in the smallest details of their life, they're able to answer that, that tension question of how do I live in a world like this? That you would know the heart of God so deeply, so intimately, that like a human relationship that's really intimate, you almost know what the person wants before they say it, that your heart could be knit to God in that way. That you would know what God wants in your workplace in this way. That you would see how you do your vocation with a creative vision, that you, that you would understand how to be a neighbor to, to, to people who are rude to you or kind to you because your mind is being transformed in this, in this way of the kingdom of God. So, whether they've been in a place of perceived power, which has caused a lot of problems, or utter disgrace, Christians, whatever the public opinion has been, have, have always, as Russell Moore says, been called to speak a strange and scandalous word whatever culture they're speaking into. A strange and scandalous word. Now, many of us have been spending a lot of time since school trying not to be seen as strange and not to be seen as scandalous. <laughs> but it's trying to be seen as normal. <laughs> trying to be seen as acceptable. Trying to be seen as those who are wanted to be around. Not those who are strange and talking about weird Christian stuff. And so, We've been, like, the church went through this very strange and awkward stage of trying to make itself cool. And it failed in lots of ways. And, and, and some of us have experienced church in, in that way, and it's made our hearts say, Man, let's, can we strip all this away and just, like, hear the heart again? Like, I, I don't need the, the pyrotechnics and the, and the slick, slick production. Uh, I, I just want to hear the message of, of Jesus. But the church has, has, has wrestled with the, the question, how do we be who we are in the midst of a culture that, in many ways, is never going to say, wow, we want to hear from you on this, or we want to give you uh, in, influence or power? Christians have always been called to speak and live out another kingdom's reality. 
called to live out a distinct identity. Interesting cultural trend in America in the last few decades is that less and less people feel the need to identify with the nominal Christianity in order to be accepted as normal. It's less likely now than ever before that a politician would join a church in order to get elected. <laughs> Whereas before, that would, that would have been a totally accepted reality. You have to be a part. You, no, no atheist is going to be elected in America. Well, maybe now. And that, like, even saying that, I, I want to avoid the, like, uh, fear that, that my mom has when she forwards me emails <laughs> that have prophetic videos on them that are just too long. Um, it causes much hand-wringing and much paranoid forwarding of videos that are we losing our place in, in the culture? Are we losing a place of prominence, a place of, of influence, a place of, of power? And the answer is probably yes. Our churches are shutting down. And people are leaving the faith. And in the academy, it's certainly not that Christianity is considered along with other worldviews with equal weight. Of course. And that's okay. And a matter of fact, that may be one of the best things that could happen for the American church. It's to stop seeing ourselves as some sort of uh, silent or moral majority and see ourselves as instead a creative minority. a, A force to live the alternative way of the kingdom of God. No matter what messages were marketed, or, or, or what our higher institutions say is, is the good life. We actually have a, a really compelling vision for the best possible and never-ending life. And so, uh, not with, with arrogance, but actually with great humility, we're called to, to embody this alternative way. And not so much to wring our hands and lament that we've lost our place, but to, to live as a creative minority. Now, Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, what is a creative minority? Rabbi Jonathan Sachs popularized this phrase, creative minority, in attempting to describe something. He was attempting to describe how the Jewish people lived in their period of exile in Babylon. That brings us to the story of Daniel. You see how this all ties in? I planned this, all right? Now, the people of Israel were founded as a people of promise. The world was fundamentally broken. In Genesis 3, there was a disconnect between people and their God. And that led to a breakdown in their fundamental identity. In the, in the fall of man, you have hiding and insecurity and fear. Then you have a brokenness in our human relationships. You have blame shifting. You have murder. Then you have the, the, the world being actually hard to work in. The soil is hard. And God says, I'm not going to leave my world this way. I'm going to begin a process of redemption and renewal that will end in those pictures and revelation of this new city with a garden in the middle of it but this process is going to begin like a seed and so he goes to Abraham right and he he calls Abraham Abraham follows him he becomes a nation the people of Israel and God through through the covenant relationship with Israel begins to show here's what I'm like in the world here's how you can trust me He, he, he takes them from a place of slavery and he reforms their culture to be a people of freedom who live as as the people of the kingdom of God and yet Israel wrestles with this over and over and over again they, they continue to imitate the way of other nations they continue to, to sort of try to lose their distinction as a as a creative or prophetic minority and try to become just like the, the, the majority around them. And, and this process of assimilation causes them to, to have identity crises, multiple, and then eventually to come to a place where they're, they're violently carried off into exile. So, when we meet Israel in the book of Daniel, the promises seem lost or devastatingly delayed. 
The prophets gave some incredible instructions, though, to those who had been carried off into this exile. Jeremiah is one of those prophets. This is, uh, this is a, a powerful vision for how the people of God are called to live in exile. I want you to hear it. Jeremiah 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. The people of God in this instance, their decline in their place of prominence their decline in their political influence, their decline in some senses and even their security was no shock to God at all. In fact, he said this is going to happen and he told them what was going to be the causation of it happening in Isaiah 39. They would continue to imitate the world and then eventually they they become absorbed into it. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs comments on this. He says, what Jeremiah was saying is that it's possible to survive in exile with your identity intact, your appetite for life undiminished, while contributing to the wider society and praying to God on its behalf. Jeremiah was introducing into history a highly consequential idea, the idea of a creative minority. The, The idea of a people who refuse to be fully absorbed into the dominant cultural narrative that surrounds them, and yes, they also refuse to entirely retreat into an enclave of just their own safety. They, they refuse to say, we're going to build our own society over here, and who cares what happens to the outside world? And they also refuse to, com- Careful. to capitulate. Woo. So, let's read it again with that in mind. Ready? The story begins with a capture, carrying off, and planned reprogramming of Daniel and his friends. It's only seven verses, so relax. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles of the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasures in the house of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men, without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And the chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, a billy goat. See, that's called a callback. Kevin, how you doing? We're going to erase that from the tape. (laughs) Abednego. Don't change the word of God. Um, I just, I want you to see a a few things and and basically we're just going to whet our appetites for a longer meditation on this story of, uh, of this, this, 
community, living as, as a creative minority, and, and dynamic equivalence for our church for how we are called in this season to live as a creative minority. But a few things I want you to see right, right off the top. Look how it's described. Go back to that first slide of, of text. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now just imagine this for a little bit. You know that these youth who are carried off, they're, they're part of the royal family and the nobility. So imagine you're living in a palace. You've been tutored your entire life. You're being trained to take over as, as a ruler and administrator in, in, in Judah. You've been well taken care of your entire life. And then all of a sudden, this powerful empire comes and besieges your, your city. Now, what uh, besiegements, it doesn't mean that they came in and beat everybody up. It means that they surrounded them and just basically said, we're strong enough to keep you right here until you run out of supplies. So we don't even have to destroy you to conquer you. Aren't we great? Babylon does that. He, they, they capture Judah. They, they carry them off by military might into exile. But then that's not enough. They, they say, now we're going to reprogram you to, to actually think this was a good idea. So we don't have to fight this fight in the next generation. We're going to help you see that the way of Babylon is actually better than the way of Israel anyway. And you're lucky that you got captured. And by the way, we besieged you instead of cr- crushing you. So the language is a historical note. Jerusalem was under siege and conquered. And then it says, and the very next little phrase, that God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So, just want you to see, because this comes up in Daniel over and over again. And this comes up in our lives over and over again. There are chronological events of history that we perceive in a timeline. And then there are moments when God is doing something that whether we perceive it or not is, con- is connected to that timeline. And, and, and we would do well to know that God is, is sovereign and in control of the world. He's able to make promises and then make good on those promises. And many times when what we perceive outwardly as, as meaning God has, has abandoned us or walked away is actually the very thing God is going to use to help us recover our truest identity as his people. If there's a... It, Many theologians say this shouldn't be called the book of Daniel, this should be called the book of God. But kind of every book in the Bible could be called that, so we're going to call it Daniel still. But this is a book about the sovereignty of God, about his power and love to keep his promises. In fact, Babylon is being used to make good on the promise that God has made to his people. That he remains a sovereign God. He is, and this is one of the hardest mysteries of of life as as a person of faith. That he is able to mysteriously incorporate even the brokenness of his people into his plan and promises. So let me say that in another way a little simpler. You have choices to make and those choices matter. And those choices result in things profound, good, and bad. It's not news to you. You knew that before you came here. You have choices to make and those choices matter. And the results of those choices birth things, good and bad, into the world. Systems, patterns, broken relationships or loving relationships, places of forgiveness and tenderness and justice and mercy, and places of grudges and anger and, and, and sarcasm and hate. Right? We have choices that matter, and those choices result in things that are real, and yet at the same time, God is in control of the world, able to make extended promises and make good on every one of them. This is a huge theme in the book of Daniel. So we need to just get it right from the beginning. So, besieged and delivered. 
how is God present in the midst of those two things? And the next thing I want, I want us just to notice, because it's going to relate to everything we're going to see in the book the rest of the way, is this plan, the systematic plan of reprogramming. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar says, I want to strip these people of their ethnic identity and re-educate them to be, to be Babylon. If they're going to succeed in this culture, they're going to have to leave behind who they are and what they were and learn to be who we want them to be. And so this systemic reprogramming has a, has a couple of features to it. It's one thing to conquer a people. It's a whole other thing to capture their minds and their imagination and to get them dreaming the same dream as a culture. So Sinclair Ferguson, uh, who has a great commentary on this, he basically points out four elements that were part of Babylon's reprogramming of these Jewish young people. So I'm going to give them to you very quickly. The first is isolation. They were carried off. They were carried off into Babylon. They were, they were removed from all the structures and, and, and culture and, and, and layers of relationship and formation that had been true in their lives up to that point. They were removed from other, the other people of God who might influence them towards walking with their, their God. Their entire environment around them was one that bent away from God and God's way. Isolation. Second was indoctrination. There was a concentrated effort to get them to no longer think like Israelites, but to think like Babylonians. An education plan to get them to imbibe a view of the world that did not need or include God, but could run on human greatness alone, and specifically the Babylonian brand of human greatness. Let me educate you with a, a view of the world that doesn't need to include God at all. We have the answers figured out, and we're doing better than your God ever could. A process of isolation, a process of indoctrination, and then a process of compromise. And this one is, uh, is, is pretty ingenious when you think about it. They're actually, they're actually to join in this process of subtle compromise that begins with their meals and, and how they're afforded certain comforts. Now, you're a conquered people. You were besieged. You were drug away. I don't know if you were in the fight, but you lost the fight. And now inst- and, and you're the humiliated, conquered people drug away to be servants in this other land. And yet they do something sneaky. They call you a distinguished courtier, and, they, and they, they, they give you some of the finest king's food and wine, and basically try to woo your heart with comfort, to, to win your heart to compromise. The process of, of converting them to the Babylonian way of thinking doesn't begin with theological debates. Let's talk about this God of Israel and the things he does. Let's talk about why you have a faith in a monotheistic God. We here in Babylon have many gods, and that serves us well. They begin by saying, eat this awesome food steak that's how they said it that's exact translation eat this awesome steak it begins with something way more subtle and way more lethal good food and wine and comfort to see yourself as distinguished Ferguson points out someone in Nebuchadnezzar's palace knew enough about the human heart to see that most men have their price that good times comfort Self-esteem and position in society are usually a sufficient bid for a soul. The fourth part was confusion. Their names were changed. From that point forward, imagine your whole life, you've been called by a certain name, and now the, the God part of the identity of your name has been stripped away and it's been attached to this Babylonian God. So now when anybody calls you out from any time forward, they're calling you by another identity. There was a confusion of identity. You're no longer the people of God. Maybe you never even were. You were kidding yourself. We've besieged you. Here you are in Babylon. Can you give up that foolish dream and just capitulate? This was the way of empire. 
An attempt to swallow the world through military might and through ideology. And you may have already begun to draw them yourself, but I think there are profound dynamic equivalents to our time. Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat in their book on subverting empire, which is called Colossians Remixed, they say this, dreams by definition are supposed to be unique and imaginative. And yet the bulk of our population is dreaming the same dream. It is a dream of wealth, power, fame, plenty of sex, and exciting recreational activities. When a whole population dreams the same dream, empire is triumphant. An alternative to the empire requires different dreams animated by a different narrative. I want us to look at the story of of Daniel, the story of this creative minority living out this alternative way in action and ask questions of our own context and say, what ways are, are we going to dream a different dream? Live out an, an alternative set of, of values. Live actually an expression of the kingdom of God. We are this outpost, the redeemed church who are not in because we're better in any way. So our posture towards our neighbor is one of humility. At the heart of our movement is someone who died for his enemies. That should inform how we relate to our neighbors or people who disagree with us, absolutely. But we are called in many places to say on this we will not conform. I love punctuating my points with the microphone sliding off. It's fantastic. They teach you that in seminary. Right at this point, let it fall off your ear. Okay. How do we live as a stranger and a friend? The book of Daniel is a book about how to, how to live in a place where the most celebrated values of the day are not your own. Where you are a stranger and that is a good tension finding places where we say we will not conform, we refuse. In the words of Jesus, it's, it's, it's finding the way to be in the world, but not of the world. I bring that Romans 12 verse to your hearts one more time. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, not just getting together to sing songs, but living as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And yet, it's a book that teaches ways of resistance. And then it's also a book that says how to offer diligent love and care for those around you. And that sometimes that involves being diligent in, in the work God's given your hands to do. There are are several crucial themes, and I'm literally just going to say a sentence about them that we're going to hit as we move through the book of Daniel for how to live as a creative minority. Daniel demonstrates this, and I think there are equivalents for us to find. The first is his vocation. Daniel doesn't go to Babylon as a preacher. He doesn't even go as a prophet. He goes basically as a servant who becomes a politician, who becomes an administrator, who keeps getting promoted because of the quality of his work, because of his diligence, and because of his wisdom. Many of you have... If, you're not, if you don't fight against it, you're, you're tend towards imagining that the people who do the work of the, of the Christian life are people who are in specific ministries. Instead of seeing that your vocation, the thing God has called you to do, is a profound ministry of the kingdom of God. That you don't have to be a preacher or a missionary or a prophet to live a full dynamic expression of the kingdom of God in the career and, and, and vocation that God has called you to do. How do we see the work of our minds and hands? How do we see what we have been given to do? 
Daniel keeps being promoted because he is diligent, because he is creative, because he is dependent on God, because he does good work, because he can be entrusted with, with, with what he's given. Vocation. Another crucial theme is maintaining a prophetic voice and life. Basically, Daniel walks in holiness of character. There is a wholeness, a coherence to his life. What he believes and how he acts, there's not a dissonance between them. And so he is able to, to live in, the, in, 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 a, in a culture that's bending and attempting to bend him another way and speak back to it with love but also with profound difference because he maintains a prophetic voice in life. The book of Daniel has some key instructions on that. Also, we see Daniel living in a community of spiritual friendship. He doesn't do this on his own. He's not a single person in this creative minority. He is, he is gathered together with a small group of spiritual friends that stir one another to be who they were most, uh, most profoundly called and created to be. Prayer. Daniel's a, a man who maintains a dependence on God in prayer and deep relational connection to his heavenly father. And then over and over again, it's a, the theme of God's faithfulness. That Daniel keeps putting himself in places where only God can come through, and then God does. So perhaps I'll receive another email this week that says we've moved from a, major- a majority to a minority, but I think that's totally fine. May we be a, a, a creative minority, a generative community of love that refuses to section itself off and also refuses to capitulate, that lives in the tension of being a prophetic people in the midst of, 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 of our time. Psalm 137 captures the grief of those who were carried away into exile. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for the songs. Our tormentors demanded us songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? We are not called to hand wringing. We are called to figure out how to sing the songs of our God in our time, in this place, in Brooklyn in 2015, to live as a creative minority. The reality, if you pay attention to the, the narratives in the Old Testament, is Daniel is, is another telling of a story we've seen before. Joseph carried off into another empire. A man who interprets dreams, dependent on God, who goes through things that were meant for evil and yet God uses them for good. And he brings people to a a, a place of freedom. And then Daniel goes, and you know what? We're going to talk about this at the very end, but Daniel sowed some seeds in the culture in Babylon that we'll see harvested at Christmas. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But Jesus, Philippians says, he left his throne and came to show us an alternative way, the way of the kingdom of God. We're, we're not going to live as a creative minority on the resources of our own strength or ability, but totally dependent on our Redeemer and on the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ was broken and poured out for us. If we're going to be broken and poured out for our neighbors, we must be sustained through Christ. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I, I, I pray over this, uh, this next Next seven weeks, Lord, as we meditate on the story of Daniel, would you form us to be a people who live as a prophetic and creative minority, a generative community of love within our time that is both courageous and discerning, 
that takes the time to really listen to what our neighbors and our city and our country are saying and to lovingly respond with an alternative way from total humility. We're only in this kingdom because of your grace. May we be a people of incredible grace. May we give off the fragrance of Christ, the aroma of mercy. May people come into our midst and as we go to them, may they taste and see that you are good. As we come to your table in just a few moments, would you stir the specific things in each person's heart that you are, you are working on, that you are asking them to, to say, don't settle for that comfort from the king's table. Receive my life. People who, who need to receive a, a new vision for their vocation. They feel like they're w- working away in a place that doesn't matter. And they struggle to see the significance. I pray you would awaken new dreams in this series and, and, and even this morning. Do your work, Holy Spirit. Show us as your people how to respond. In the name of Jesus, amen.